Welcome to Two Dope Boys in a Podcast. I'm Phil McKenzie. I'm Michael Brooks. On Point is where we highlight someone getting it right. And I'm really excited for several reasons. One, because our our next guest is has written an, an incredible book that I think is, is very important. And also self-servedly, as a graduate of Duke, she teaches at Duke. So I'm going to, I have to throw um, some extra love in there. We're joined by um, Professor Nancy McLean, the William H. Chaff Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. And she's the author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. That's a lot of intro, but it's all deserved. Go Duke. <laughs> Thank you. It's really great to be with you, Michael and Phil. I always call Duke the Koch brothers of universities. I'm just kidding. Why is that? No, I'm just being obnoxious. I, oh, just, yeah. I like, I like to trash. bust, but yeah, I like to bust Phil's college bubble a little bit. He's literally it's like a one man college just bubble. Just being obnoxious because Duke <laughs> is awesome. Yes. Oh, yeah. Totally really awesome. So let's, we have a lot to get to in this book, but I, I think okay. the kind of, and, and what's relevant about this book, our show deals with uh, actually business, deals with brands, deals with innovation, deals with um, sort of more structural questions around the economy. And you're doing a lot of work here because you're talking about a really dangerous plan that frankly, very dangerous extremist ideologues have for this country. Uh, mm -hmm. And, but you're also doing intellectual history and you're also doing a lot of debunking and this basic debunk i think that even people who have an allergy to free market fanaticism and libertarianism there's this generic notion that well you know even if i disagree and think those guys are irresponsible that those are the freedom people those are the mm -hmm. people, maybe too much yeah. freedom. Maybe it's the freedom, you know, those are the, they're the pro-pot, pro-porn, pro-arsenic and water guys. And whatever <laughs> else you say about them, you got to believe that at least they respect freedom. In fact, the whole point of your book in many respects is that this market and, you know, extremism, kind of religion, whatever you want to call it, is actually quite antithetical to democracy and that this long-term mm -hmm. libertarian project is one that is directly opposed to democratic norms, constitutional protections, and really individual rights as we conceive of them in any developed industrialized democracy. Yes, that was a great summary. Uh, I think that is absolutely um, a good um, uh, characterization of what you're calling the basic debunk. Uh, as I began to study this, and particularly seeing it evolve in its uh, formative Virginia context, you could really see that the elites who were talking about liberty were at the same time suppressing freedom for the majority of Virginians. And that was whites as well as blacks, although blacks got the brunt of it. Um, but but these were people who did not want workers to have the freedom to organize, did, want, did not want African Americans to have the freedom to litigate or to organize or to do, you know, all the things you do Load, as an active walk on the citizenship. Street. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, so, so, so there's a brilliant poem by Langston Hughes. I, I should have printed it out and should have it with me at all times for this book, but where he counterposes liberty and freedom, um, and freedom as a beautiful thing and liberty as, as, as a place of nightmares and trauma. Right. And, and I think that is really important for all of us to think about that what these, 
folks that I write about talk about as economic liberty, or as they just say liberty, um, and they even call themselves the freedom movement uh, sometimes now, as you say, it would take away all the freedoms that the majority has won over the course of the 20th century and had sorry, it's been one day, enshrined in constitutional protections, as you say, and in a legally, right, legally recognized right to organize, um, and in civil rights protections from discrimination, all of these things, you know, you have to restrain the freedom of some, in this case, elite minorities of wealthy people in order to protect the freedoms of the vast majority. And so I'm really glad that you're starting with that because I think that uh, progressives need to reclaim the mantle of freedom because it's also fraudulent if you look at what these people are doing at the state level to um, to uh, grossly abuse power to take away freedoms from local communities. One of the things that, that really struck me as I went through the book is that you you find a way to trace back to really history that people might not necessarily think is that applicable to now. You you talk at length about um, Calhoun as a as a character that in a, John in a, C. Calhoun, yeah, that mm-hmm. basically like pushed a lot of these ideas as a as a um, a slaveholder as someone who was a, a leading figure in the um, 1800s as we built, as we led up to the Civil War. And and so much of this has been lost, it seem, seemingly lost in antiquity. And I'm, and I'm curious mm-hmm. as to, like, how did it feel uncovering this through the lens of this person, James Buchanan, who has um, really been in the shadows to a lot of mm-hmm. people. I think many people who consider themselves to be fairly knowledgeable on these topics wouldn't necessarily pull him out of their out of their first few names of of um, people who I had never heard of politics. him when I started this so your listeners shouldn't feel bad if they've never heard of him <laughs> Yeah, that is um, uh, such an important uh, line of thinking and, and, and of what I see as, as the book's contribution is to really root it in place. Um, and uh, I guess but the part of my interest in this um, came from my experience as a, a Southern historian. I mean, I wear many hats, and now I just try to think of myself as a historian of the modern U.S., um, or of the U.S. period, but um, but I have done a lot of work on the South, and so for some years now, even before I started on this project, I um, was bothered by the literature on neoliberalism, you know, both scholarly and popular writing, that people seem to be not recognizing that this package of ideas that we think of as neoliberalism and, you know, involving economic liberty and freedom from regulation and, you know, uh, constraints on workers' rights to organize and so forth and so on, that all of that, uh, people seem to be treating that like it just, you know, sort of sprang like, what is it, Venus from the head of Zeus or something, you know, in the the 1950s and and then came into... action in the 1970s in response to inflation and um, the turn away from Keynesianism. And, and, and as a Southern historian, I could see that these ideas were so resonant with deep, deep, you know, deep-rooted uh, currents in Southern history. So I was always troubled by what I came to think of as kind of the immaculate conception story of neoliberalism, um, that it was just a, a, a movement of ideas until the 1970s. And uh, I happened on this Virginia story quite 
quite by accident, you know, we don't have to get into the details. And, and then again, by accident, I happened on to Buchanan. Um, but what I could see through him was how uh, the ideas of neoliberalism, you know, have become very popular in terms of Southern governance. And, you know, the Tea Party is disproportionately Southern, the Freedom Caucus, you know, all of this um, stuff is, is disproportionately white right-wing Southern. And, you know, I, I realized that, you know, these ideas, these guys might have been smart, but these ideas gained the following that they did in the South, not because they were so intellectually persuasive, but because they were so uh, resonant with and echoing of these old traditions on can, the Southern white right, can, like John C. Calhoun, as you point out. Can you make that line really direct? Explain who John C. Calhoun and James Buchanan yeah. are for the audience. And then I think, yes, that's a really important point you were just hitting on the these ideas would have gone nowhere. You know, I, I kind of call libertarianism, I've always called it Scientology of politics. It doesn't have much, <laughs> like it's, it's quite crazy, it's quite extreme, it doesn't have much innate appeal, but, you know, where there's funding, there's a way. And, go, right. and I think what so, you so show well in, this, in this Southern Roots is that when you have, a, you know, hey, I have a you know, intellectual artifice for building a Southern uh, foreign policy, in fact, mm -hmm. built on defending slavery or, you know, whatever right. else. So talk about John C. Calhoun, James Buchanan, and how this type of thinking, and I also like it because it's so, it's so simple. It's like these policies actually work exactly like you think they would work. They're the ones kind of doing all this jujitsu of like, oh no, right. this is actually secretly good for everybody and spreads prosperity. <laughs> and it's like, well, actually, if you look at it on its face, this stuff works like you think it would work, which is that if you give yes. rich people everything, then it benefits rich people and nobody else. And that's how it works. So go from can John you come C. On the, my, can you come I'm, on my oh, tour with me? Oh, I, anytime. <laughs> it's my Both pleasure. Both of you. You really, you're getting this like, you're like nobody's business. Um, I'd love to. Yeah. So, so um, it, the John C. Calhoun connection is really interesting because some of Buchanan's own colleagues and heirs at George Mason University, Tyler Cohen and Alexander Tabarrok, pointed out the similarity between uh, Calhoun's political economy and Buchanan's political economy. And, um, the, you know, they're completely anachronistic, right? And so they say, like, Calhoun's ideas were great, except for the connection to slavery. <laughs> you know, except <laughs> these ideas were designed to just defend a, just a slavery as a form of arch capitalism. Besides the um, Holocaust, a lot of innovative ideas on urban planning. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it's 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 you know they're they're totally anachronistic. But what they do say is that um, in the substance of the ideas, Calhoun's ideas and Buchanan's ideas, I believe the quote was, um, have the same purpose and effects. And so, <laughs> you know, that. this is his colleague saying that. This is not just me. Um, but what I was able to show is how Calhoun's ideas had been exhumed in Virginia just at the moment when Buchanan came to the University of Virginia, these ideas were being exhumed by Virginia's white anti-Brown, uh, you know, anti, well, anti, it is anti-Brown, but also anti-Brown versus Board of Education elite um, to fight the Supreme Court ruling that schools must be um, desegregated. And, uh, and I think, here's where I think it's, there might be something interesting to, to struggle with a, a little bit, though, um, and it goes back to a, an earlier question that I might not have answered uh, well enough. 
I think that we, you know, people who are like believe in democracy and social justice, I think that we have maybe sometimes slipped into habits of thought that um, still too much will divide race from class. And even though we will point out, you know, the extent of institutional racism and we have, you know, like this emerging political economy of like the history of racial capitalism in the United States, you know, how profitable slavery was as a capitalist enterprise, you know, the way in which the real estate industry profited from segregation and so forth and so on. We have all that. And yet sometimes when we see ideas like this, we want to just push them into a box that says attitudinal racism. And so something that's been interesting to me in the way that some readers and reviewers have responded to this book is – and this is on both right and left. Like people on the, the left will say that Buchanan was a segregationist, you know, and the right will say she's saying Buchanan is a segregationist and that's not fair. And what's interesting to me is nowhere in the book do I say Buchanan was a segregationist. You know, what I say was that he was committed to this arch vision of economic liberty. He did not generally speak in terms of race, but his vision of empowering the minority, in his case, that was clearly not the African-American population, but rather the whites who felt their liberties threatened. Um, His case for that was resonant with these deep Southern traditions, and he was effectively allying with the most avid segregationists in his calls for, you know, privatizing the schools before we had that verb privatized. Uh, but but I'm, I didn't say he was a segregationist. And, and I worry a little bit that sometimes, um, you know, we can think, well, if we can say that somebody's a racist, then we know who they are and we know how to deal with them. We kind of put the box, you know, put them in the box and close the lid and it's okay. But I think what this story reveals is something much more troubling, which is that um, uh, notions of uh, legitimate class power in the United States are so deeply embedded in our traditions of racial dominance in an economy founded and built on slavery that that we you know we we just find it hard to kind of t- to 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 get to the core of this if you know what i'm saying yeah i think um to that point one of one of the things i highlighted was this idea of the protection of private property and i think it ties very much to that point because so much of the wealth of the South was predicated on human property, you know, owning, yeah. owning human beings and building your wealth based yeah. around that. And the dissolution of that as a system then seems to start to tie into all these other ideas, this giving people things that they don't deserve, this idea of, of public choice and that their choices are going to be overwhelmed by, by bringing other people to the table. So I, I agree that I think there's that, you know, we're wrestling with these ideas yeah. of, of race and class. And mm-hmm. as I read through the book, I think that was where I kind of settled into to think about the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we do on the show that we talk about a lot is this idea of timelines. Uh-huh. And and one of the things I noticed that we we say that, you know, organizations need to rethink their their time horizon. And mm-hmm. one of the things that really stuck out about this guy's work and those around him is that it seemed that their time horizon was much longer than many people would have assumed. Um, mm-hmm. I was really struck and I wrote this down in my notes. The Buckley quote, as they prepared, as they noticed that, as they realized mm-hmm. that Goldwater was going to lose, that 
you know, a counter-revolution takes years. You mm -hmm. know, that they were comfortable with the idea of losing that election, knowing right. that their ideas were going to take much longer to formulate. Like, why do you think that that is so much more prevalent in these worlds as compared to the progressive world where it doesn't seem like that ever happens? Wow, such an interesting uh, question. But I first want to go back to your point about property rights, this tradition of property rights supremacy mm -hmm. being key to understanding the racial politics and, and projects. I think that is um, so astute. And, I, and I, so I just want to really like flag that uh, for readers because you're absolutely right. And that, that property rights supremacism, you could say, uh, is very Southern. And, it, you know, when I have had, um, you know, I have some wonderful colleagues and reading groups and stuff, you know, who are early Americanists or there's Robin Einhorn work on taxation at Berkeley, this is a Southern tradition, you know, even though these people try to lay claim to the founders and, you know, early America. In fact, in the North, in, in the period when Calhoun was writing, people were kind of excited about taxes. You know, it's like they had a democratic government and it's like, whoa, well, let's pay some taxes to support our infant industries. You know, we're building a new country. Let's pay some taxes to get some roads. Let's pay some taxes to make our schools good. You know, they, they did not have an issue with that and they were excited by by Einhorn's telling about um, being able to decide how they would pool these resources and use them, use them for common purposes. And everybody kind of took it for granted. And this is true of Adam Smith, too, by the way, that wealthy people should pay more taxes. It's from Calhoun and these, these, these arch capitalists who held other people as a form of property and made their wealth from them. It's from that tradition that we get this notion of makers and takers and that somehow, you know, ordinary ordinary people of small means who want to have public goods are exploiting the property holders. So uh, that I, I totally agree. I think the property rights um, dimension is, is, is the best way of understanding this rather than, you know, putting it into like categories of segregation. And just a quick aside on that, I don't think this made it into the final draft of the book, but um, Buchanan's longtime writing partner, Gordon Tullock, was at South Carolina in the early 60s, and I found correspondence from students he had mentored in the Young Americans for Freedom chapter there and the Young Republicans group who were boasting of picketing against stores that had desegregated in response to uh, movement pressure because they had bowed to coercion. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, so that is a really good illustration, I think, of what you're saying about how, you know, the emphasis on property rights is, is key to this. Now, about the timelines, I'm glad that you, you picked that up, too, because I think one thing that, you know, people who are not in this minority of, of libertarian zealots can learn from what they have done is to have a longer time horizon. And that is, that is, is so um, important to think about. Buchanan and actually, apparently, when he would be interviewing new colleagues or students, he would ask them, I forget what the three questions were, but like, would they rather have a good review of their book or would they rather have a something, I don't know, 10 year line or would they rather be, you know, recognized two generations later or something like that. And for him, the long term, the long horizon was always the most important. You know, he did not believe that for a project this um, 
foundational and radical that you could have an effect on the short term, that you had to be looking to really fundamentally change the terms of play, the terms of discussion and everything. So his timeline was very long. Um, that's also Buckley. I, you know, I think Buckley actually had a shorter timeline or at least worked two timelines. Um, but the one that's really interesting in this, too, is Charles Koch, because James Buchanan really wasn't centrally involved in the final rollout of what we've seen in recent years. That's after Charles Koch essentially takes his ideas and kind of takes over his institution and they kind of nudge him to the side um, and he goes into, um, you know, effective retirement, kind of starts to sequester himself at his mountain cabin um, after he's been pushed out. But when, when they uh, take over, it's interesting because that's after Charles Koch has been investing for several decades. And by his telling, when he invested in Buchanan's uh, center at George Mason, he said uh, words to the effect of, you know, I have spent uh, three decades investing in hundreds of scholars because I was looking for the right technology. And this is a guy with three engineering degrees from MIT, so he calls ideals technology. Um, but, you know, he, fe he felt that he had found them, and then he wanted to, again, in his words, unleash the kind of force that propelled Columbus. So he has this world historic mission. He's a zealot. He's compared himself to Martin Luther. But the reason that I think it's um, uh, important to think about is it comes back to your point about time horizons. And most people who worked with Koch in a business context talked about his infinite patience, you know, that he would wait and wait and wait for a technology. You know, his company is a private company. It's not publicly held because, and he has, he has expressed his utter contempt for public, those who work in publicly held or run publicly held corporations because they're accountable to stockholders who only think about, you know, the next quarter and the next year, you know, when you should be thinking really long term. So, you know, you were just like so spot on on this question of time horizons that, that uh, Koch's time horizon was very, very long as he waited to get the technology that he began to implement the technology technology, you know, in a, uh, you know, he was doing it all along, but really in a big way after 1997, and then again after 2009, uh, but with an understanding that this would be a slow project with many different moving parts, and you had to have a great degree of patience to make it work. So evil people can think long-term as well. Uh, I think yeah. the... So and that's and, oh, but that, your yeah. other point was that progressives don't and and just to underscore yeah. that I mean it's just so sad to me to watch the confusion and the befuddlement on uh, you know among liberals and the left now in the the you know, now that Trump has been elected, you know, and people are just, you know, chasing after the latest tweet and, you know, right. thinking they've got the goods on Donald Trump. And it's like, don't you realize these people are pushing through a transformational project, you know, at every level in the states, in the courts and in Congress while you're focusing on this con man's tweets. Uh, I could not have said that better myself. And I try to say some version of that every day <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a host. Um, do you, th you know, and that, that's one thing that is striking about the Kochs is that obviously you think of other, you know, pernicious plutocrats that play this, you know, undemocratic mm -hmm. role in our society. But some guy like Sheldon Adelson, I mean, I guess, I guess actually he does have this fanatical devotion to his conception of Israel. Besides that, he's just, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's a modern form of pay for play. And mm -hmm. he's looking out for his casinos and he wants to get given right. tax giveaways. But the Kochs are an interesting fusion of really genuine 
um, you know, obviously their fanaticism is completely mm-hmm. synchronized with their self-interest, but they are, you know, they do seem to be real believers in their cult and not just the funders of it. I guess... And, and, that's, and I think that's, yeah. that's particularly true of Charles. I don't even, I can't even remember if I mentioned David in the book, because, you know, we've all gotten used to talking about the Koch brothers, yeah. but David was a very late add-on. You know, he was not as possessed by this stuff as Charles. Oh, he David's was, a loser. You know, yeah, yeah totally. and he also, yeah. you know, he was like a playboy, you know, until he had an accident, and, you know, it was his come-to-Jesus moment, Wait, this or guy gets to Charles. a friggin' sciatica, and now he needs to work to take away food out of kids' mouths? That's great. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, don't know I just can't go out and enjoy my know. life anymore. I really yeah. need to work with my brother to make sure people don't have health care or clean air. <laughs> I, don't have, I, I don't have time for fun anymore. Now I need to focus all of my efforts on causing human mystery across the globe. <laughs> you can like, you can uh, say it as host. I as I as no. Color. I know. Let me, I have uh, maybe, one more. Maybe you have to pull back from that, but it is I have, true uh, that Co- that Charles Koch is the more possessed one. And you know, in loves being in Kansas, you know, a place that he, as James Buchanan would have, understands to be very very different from the world of the northeastern elite, in which you know David uh, Koch was comfortable at least until recently. So right. I, Charles Koch, I think, is the, the 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 main one to keep an eye on. Can I give you one more line before my? question okay as i saw my last girlfriend out of my penthouse suite i turned on the tv and saw the bhopal disaster and realized i wasn't doing enough <laughs> okay wow. i'm sorry wow. okay yeah uh hey there's an entertainment yeah. profile here as well but the real <laughs> the real question there's a lot of breathtaking <laughs> stuff out there i could I'll, yes. I'll, I'll, um, i believe it see you and match you tim phillips saying that um the trump care is immoral because yes. it concedes too much to obama's uh, Obamacare, you know, that it's, That's it's, what they it's say. providing too much health care to people who haven't paid for it. And they call that immoral. And I think that speaks to what you were just saying about the distinctive zealotry of the Koch project, you and know, that they really do have a moral system. Um, and it would be un- utterly unrecognizable to most of your listeners and to anyone who is, you know, Same. a believer Ascension. in any of the Ascension world's great beings. religious traditions. It's so, you know, you provide for the stranger, you care for the sick, you do something about poverty. These are at least the ideals that people are supposed to uphold. But if I cared for but, the sick, sorry. then they wouldn't work hard. Which was actually yes. Charles Koch's answer to uh, the Buddha, but um, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, I just was looking down. I, it happens that I have Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist on my shelf, and I just happened to see it as you were saying that. But you know, there's actually somebody on the von Mises, um, uh, whatever it's called, Institute website, who said basically, you know, Scrooge was right. I think was the headline, you know, oh, yeah. that he'd gotten a bad deal because actually <laughs> this is a good way to motivate people. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is I mean it is an ethical system that has its own logic and coherency but I think that if people in America understood that it that people who believe this way have taken over one of our major political parties um they would be pretty shocked and might actually get off the couch and off their Facebook pages. Well, what's the final I guess this is the this is as we move towards towards sort of ending though. What Obviously, for decades, these people have undermined financial regulations. They've, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they've blocked progress on the social safety net. Of course, Obamacare is better than what was before it. But even in a kind of, you know, more sane world, we'd obviously have much more robust universal health care. And it's mm-hmm. due to them that we haven't had these things. It's due to them that we have all sorts of extremist initiatives on the state level. 
but you are, you know, you the the technology hasn't been fully deployed yet. So mm-hmm. what is the plan that these dangerous mm-hmm. people have for the next decade if they get their druthers for really structurally undermining democracy, making us look kind of almost like I don't know, 70s India with nicer phones or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What they're doing has so many elements, almost more than you can follow. You know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that phrase, the octopus, is kind of good because if you just get the sense of these many, many arms waving, you know, it's almost hard to tell where the main body of the animal uh, is going or whatever whatever an octopus is. Um, but, uh, but I think the key thing to pay attention to is what Buchanan always called for, which was constitutional revolution. Mm-hmm. And Buchanan always said, don't focus on the rule, stop focusing on the rulers and look to the rules, right? And so he wanted not to, and that's again where the left, it's so sad, you know, just these pathetic back and forth about, you know, Hillary and Bernie and, you know, should it be Elizabeth or should it be Bernie? And it's like people, you know, think about, like they do, think about building power, think about changing the national conversation, think about, you know, obstructing efforts to destroy what you've worked for a century to build while you, you know, lay groundwork for something more ambitious. That's what we should uh, be doing. So their ultimate plan, I believe, is this constitutional revolution, which the Chilean experience that Buchanan had in in advising on Pinochet's so-called Constitution of Liberty, which Ariel Dorfman, the Chilean refugee, has called Pinochet's sinister constitution. Michelle Bachelet, uh, president elected by more than two-thirds of the voters, called the Constitutional of Locks and Bolts because it, it so prevents the majority will from um, affecting uh, politics and policy. Uh, so Buchanan came home from that experience in Chile in 1980, really convinced that he had tried it, it was going to work. Charles Koch, you know, liked the idea and began to work for the Social Security privatization that went on uh, also with Buchanan's uh, advising and Buchanan's ideas in Chile. So they are doing all these different things, but ultimately they are working toward uh, a constitutional convention. They uh, have already gotten 28 states signed up. Um, they only need six more to call a constitutional convention. We have not had a constitutional convention since 1787. Once it gets convened, there are no rules. So the most powerful and well-organized players will dominate it. That would be people from this Coke apparatus. The very first thing that they want is a balanced budget amendment, which they were unable to get through the regular political process. Um, and they would use that to essentially undermine Social Security and Medicare and, right. and you know many of the things we all count on, but they would go on from that to a panoply of other uh, measures that would, again, you know, shackle the majority will. That is what they seek to do, shackle the majority will through writing new rules, and in the case of constitutional law, binding rules. And one thing that concerns me is that liberal um, journalists are so focused on the partisan elements of all this or, you know, the, the racist elements in terms of voter suppression uh, that they're not um, paying much attention to the legal project, and the mm-hmm. legal project is just hugely important. You know, they've uh, been building up the field of law and economics. They built the Scalia Law School at George Mason. They have, uh, at one point, Buchanan's colleague, Henry Manny, had trained 40% of sitting federal uh, judges. 
Jesus. Upsetting federal judges had gone to a Coke, uh, Coke-backed, Coke-funded curriculum. Um, that has changed now because Obama was able to uh, to name a large number of federal judges. But it gives you a sense of the reach of this and how very, very serious they are about changing the law schools, the courts, and constitutional interpretation. So I think that is the ultimate end game: is this thing that Buchanan referred to as constitutional revolution. And to give you a sense of how radical it is, he did not think any existing constitution in the world provided adequate protection for the minor- for the minority. And again, as we've said earlier, he did not mean dissenting political minorities. He did not mean racial minorities. He meant the wealthy minority. And so if they are able to achieve the kind of constitutional change they seek, um, it will take generations to, to undo it. Well, that is a that is a sad, sad note to go out on, but maybe it's a wake-up call, you know, that yeah. those of us who are in the progressive camp will begin to organize, will build our own societies, but based on doing something that is good and moral and right for the rest of us. This has been a great conversation. It's gone even better than I could have imagined. I, on the other hand, uh, would just like to say to the Koch brothers, uh, I'm changing my politics, and if you'd like to fund my new ventures, uh, available. <laughs> if you would like a charismatic grassroots voice we for lose our a balanced balance budget amendment and the true protection of the most vulnerable in our society, Trust Fund Babies, got your back. <laughs> you guys, this was really, really just so okay. interesting and enjoyable conversation. Hope to talk to you again. Bye-bye. Thank you, Professor. Thank Bye. you.